This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Warren is pretty interesting, as horrible as he is. When you're watching history unfold, you know, when you're sitting in a courtroom watching somebody, this was history in the making. This was a crazy chapter in Texas history. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Katie Vine, and I'm a staff writer at Texas Monthly. Katie Vine reported on a religious sect that broke away from the Mormon church called the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS. I wrote two stories about the FLDS during the short, tumultuous time that they were in Texas, one that asked if the kids were safe there and another that covered the Warren Jeffs trial. I did pitch this story myself. I think I had just read about it in the paper as events were unfolding. And then when the media sort of went away, that's when I went in. And how did they respond at Texas Monthly? I mean, did they think this is... It was sort of a see what you can get. At the time, the FLDS was very closed off. It seemed like I probably wouldn't get anything from them, but that there was enough, even without the FLDS participation, that there was a story to tell about how safe those kids were after the state put them back with the families. Can you, uh, I want to pause for just a second. Can you tell me the difference between LDS versus these, I mean, what is, because I, I do think with stories like this, with the Jeff's case, they just get lumped together, and we know that's not the case. Oh, definitely not. Right. So what what would be the major difference? The break? Yes. Well, the FLDS still practices polygamy. <laughs> the LDS does not. They abandoned that practice long ago. The FLDS has their own separate president and prophet. They're a small sect that broke away from the mainstream LDS church. I don't remember when, but... It's been a while. I mean, there are other offshoots like this, uh, like the FLDS. Maybe for those who don't know the story, I can back up and tell a little bit more about Warren Jeffs. Warren was this sort of pimply kid favored by his father, Rulon Jeffs, who was the president and prophet of the FLDS. That's the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints that was then centered in the twin towns of Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. That's collectively known as Short Creek. And he's this sort of skinny kid, privileged status under his dad, a tattletale with a reputation as a peeping Tom. Before he's 21, he becomes principal of the church's private school, Alta Academy, which sort of de-emphasized science and current events and rewrote coursework to reflect the interpretation of FLDS theology. Then his father falls ill and Warren positions himself as the president and prophet 
Two days after his father died in 2002, he announced to the men, hands off my father's wives, and he begins marrying them all himself. I think in the end he had 78 wives, 24 of which involved children under age 17. How was this received by his group? I mean, by these people once his father dies? It was sort of a gradual thing. They got a little bit younger, a little bit younger. He's the president and prophet, and so some of them, I think, privately questioned it, but would never publicly question it. That's just not something that was done. He was also arranging marriages, president and prophet does in that church between, I think, 67 marriages between other men and underage girls. He facilitated a total of 500 bigamous marriages. There are 10,000 people in the church. In the end, he dismantled, I think, 300 families because he can sort of rearrange at will and take someone's family away from them and move them in with somebody else's family. Utah began prosecuting the FLDS for bigamy and unlawful uh, sex with underage wives around 2003, I think. And Warren just figured he needed to do something. So what happened was, and how Texas kind of came into the picture is in 2004, Texas law said that at age 14, you could get married with a parent's permission. Wait, what? Yeah. Wait, how is that yeah. even possible? After the FLDS moved here, they moved it to 16. Because <laughs> I think they, my guess is that the intention was so that if somebody got pregnant young, they could be married so that you could try to have a solid family base there. Is I think that was probably the original intention. But then when they noticed hearing about the underage wives, uh, they, they moved that pretty quickly. And from what I understand, that doesn't mean a judge has to approve it. It's just parents' permission. Or they bought about 1,700 acres of land just outside El Dorado, Texas, which is kind of near San Angelo in West Texas. Warren took the most elite members of that 10,000 in the church and rewarded them with admittance to this ranch, which he called the Yearning for Zion Ranch. And that is— Or YFZ. That's it. Yeah. The unworthy would remain back in Short Creek. And those are sort of folks who he thought were lying or not doing exactly as— they were told. He starts excommunicating men whom he finds disobedient, sending them to repent from afar, casting out young men, arranging marriages between the wives of kids, uh, of excommunicated with the more faithful men. Anyone slightly disloyal is expelled. So he had this sort of iron grip on them already. There was no opposition. There's no rebellion building. I mean, they're literally doing what he wants them to do. For the most part. I mean, I'm sure that there were instances of people who disagreed, but they would be expelled. So, So in April 2006, he was indicted on criminal charges, rape as an accomplice for arranging a marriage between a 14-year-old and her 19-year-old cousin. And he went on the lam, hiding out in various places. I think in total, he spent 114 days on the FBI's most wanted list. And then trouble started in Texas in 2008, in late March, when a crisis center in San Angelo got a phone call from a girl who said she was 16, that she had a child. She was living on the YFC ranch and was abused by her husband and wanted out. There's a lot to that story. That caller had a history of making hoax phone calls. Um, I actually tracked her down at one point, but she gave such a confusing interview, I couldn't I couldn't make heads or tails of it. On April 3rd, the Texas Rangers and some local law enforcement went onto the ranch property with some workers from Child Protective Services looking for this underage girl, initially specifically looking for her. But then they start interviewing girls who spoke of underage marriages and pregnancies. And at this point, the authorities have severely 
underestimated the number of children who were living there. I think they thought there was a total of 250 people out there. But they found, I don't know how many adults, there were over 400 kids. This is not something they had considered. The first night, CPS took a handful of girls, and over the next few days, they took them all. There may have been boys outside the property when the raid took place, and that might account for the disparity between teenage boys and girls. Uh, There are, I think, about twice as many teen girls as boys. But all told, the state removed 437 children plus some additional women believed to be children at that time. Can you set the scene for that? Is there any retribution happening? Are they the members letting it happen? Is it tactical gear? Do you know what that scene was like? It depends on who you ask. (laughs) I think law enforcement was concerned there was going to be a Waco situation. I mean, you're taking people's kids away, hundreds of kids. It terrified the kids. There were stories about law enforcement coming into homes with weapons, traumatizing the kids just by their presence. I think everybody would argue it was awful, particularly for the kids. 139 women went voluntarily to be with their kids, and I think 60 or 70 men and elderly women stayed on the property. Even the social workers actually are haunted by memories of that time. You remember what happened in Florida? I was at a a news station when they took away Elian. I think it was Elian Gonzalez. And that photo of him being pulled out of a closet, I think, by this guy in full tactical gear and a huge gun. I mean, it's horrifying. And that photo was printed so many places. And it just symbolized what that means, being ripped away from your family. So I imagine that's kind of the same imagery. There was press all over this thing. 14 days after the removal, there was a chaotic hearing for all the kids. And the district judge in San Angelo, Barbara Walther, decides the kids are in immediate danger. State keeps the kids in temporary custody, sending them all over the state to various homes and facilities. The case quickly rises to the Texas Supreme Court, and then the children are sent back to the YFC ranch in West Texas. I had at that time been sort of watching it in the news and I thought, I don't want to be one of these hundreds of reporters. I'm just going to get the same thing as everybody else. I'm just going to wait. Most people stopped paying attention by like May 2008 when uh, the children were returned to the ranch. And a lot had sort of happened by that point. Some people had quit the Department of Child and Protective Services, making them more available to speak freely. Twelve men from the ranch had been indicted for underage marriages. And to me, just from a storytelling perspective, documents had been released, in particular Warren Jeff's writings, that showed what had been going on. So things like, this is a quote, so send me the list of the older unmarried daughters of Brother Merrill Jessup and Brother Wendell Nielsen, who their mothers are and their exact ages. Inform me if there's anyone in the family that does not know their duty to perform. Also, if they're being too social in the kitchen. Being too social in the kitchen, what does that mean? He's just... A control freak. (laughs) Control freak. Yeah. Another one, he says, The Lord showed me that my wife Becky withheld her confession. As I was leaving yesterday, I asked her, where is your letter? And she said she wrote it, but didn't want to give it to me. I asked her why not. I said, write it quickly. So she wrote me a letter that said nothing except, I want to do better. So today I was impressed of the good spirit to call her and say, you have had bad feelings. Have you withheld your confession? And I saw she was fearful to tell me, and she acknowledged she had many bad feelings. So I told her to pack up her things, and she would be leaving in an hour to go back to Short Creek. She reacted wrong. She didn't pray, almost accusing me of not loving her. It just sort of showed 
how he had been kicking people out of places. And just as a reminder, Short Creek is the banished. It's yeah. like Siberia. It's the for, banished area yeah. for, for the people who are, right. are not following the rules. Yeah, yeah. So I read, I can't remember how many pages of dictations that he gave. These are dictations. I, I call them writings. Actually, he had other women around him constantly writing down his thoughts, his every, <laughs> his every thought. And sometimes they would have to sit next to him while he was sleeping in case he had thoughts in the middle of the night or if he had a dream, they would have to make sure they wrote that down because it might be some kind of a revelation. Anyway, (laughs) I asked the unofficial spokesman at the time, Willie Jessup, if I could come to the YFC ranch in El Laredo. And to my surprise, he was open to it. I think the church believed that they'd sort of won and that the state would leave them alone. More surprising was that when I got there to the ranch, I brought a photographer with me, Sarah Wilson, and Willie drove us around the ranch and mentioned that one of the girls who'd been married to Jeff's, his youngest wife, Marianne Jessup, was on the property and asked if we wanted to meet her. I was like, are you kidding me? Marianne is here. She was by that point 15. She had been 12 when she was married to Warren. The photo of Warren carrying her in his arms on their wedding night got out into the press um, years earlier and really freaked people out for good reason. She is tiny in that photo. A sixth grader, Warren is a tall grown man and they're embraced in a kiss. He's holding her like like he's cradling her like a cradling baby. Cradling her like a baby yeah. and then, you know, kissing her full on the mouth. Her mother and guardian came out with her and they spoke with us, agreed to have her portrait taken. We have a very unusual circumstance, right? Uh, she was fierce, funny. She indicated that the state of Texas just didn't understand the FLDS. All she would really say in response to my questions was, the truth will prevail. Again, her mother and legal guardian and the man who was the spokesman were standing there. So who knows what she might have said otherwise. But I got the impression she probably would have said the same thing in private at that time. She agreed to be photographed with everyone's consent, everyone standing there. And her face didn't betray any wavering from her words. No, so, the photograph is very striking yeah, in, in the really magazine. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And she seems well beyond her years, yeah. very confident. And, and is that just the reinforcement of FLDS? I don't know. You know, having only met her and spent, what, maybe 15 minutes with her. It's, I just don't know. I know afterwards, we really wrestled with naming her, <laughs> you know, because it's common practice not to name minors in these situations because they'll be stigmatized. But... What it came down to was, you know, the whole story is about how underage married girls in the community aren't stigmatized. They don't keep the marriage a secret. They believe the state just doesn't get it. So I still wrestle with whether that was the right call, but we did. So at the end of the first article, which ran in October 2009, I was still wrestling with the question of, are the kids safe now? Which was sort of tricky, right? You have to wonder whether just what outcome you're hoping for. If you have a teenager and you think she's in danger, her parents have performed underage marriages and she's not married, but you think she could be. And what would result is what some women who've left FLDS describe, not just as forced sex, which is bad enough, but forced pregnancy, which would keep them bonded to the community. But thus far, she hasn't been in danger. Nothing's happened to her. Judges were having to weigh this. It's kind of like, well, the parents haven't done anything with this child. So why would you take that child away based on some potential? And other people were arguing that the most faithful at this place have done every single thing that this leader has told them to do. And he's doing crazy stuff. 
if they can't even, in some cases, sign a document saying that they will not marry off their daughter under a certain age, is that kid safe? The Department of Family and Protective Services identified 12 girls ranging from age 12 to 15 who'd been victims of sexual abuse with the knowledge of their parents. Two were 12 when they were married, three were 13, two were 14, five were 15. Seven of them had one or more children, and all of them were what they call non-suited, just given back to the families, except for Marianne. Marianne and, and another 15-year-old became the subjects of the criminal trial against um, Orrin Jeffs. That was in 2011. And so that became the second story that I did. This happened at the courthouse in San Angelo, overrun with news trucks, and it was a big deal. The room was packed 100 degrees outside. It lasted 10 days. And while I guess it shouldn't have really surprised any of us, Warren Jeffs decided to release his attorneys pretty quickly, I think within the first couple hours of the trial. And he decided he was going to address the court. So this is what I wrote in the story. Jeff slowly stood up to make what would then be his first ever public speech. As a courtroom of people craned their necks to get a good view of him, the wood benches creaked. Jeff's is a tall, thin man, and he was dressed on that day in a dark suit and sensible black shoes. His graying hair was cut short. He stooped over as if at age 55, he'd had an early onset of osteoporosis. With his hands folded in front of his waist, he began speaking in a slow, deep nasal monotone. I have released all my counsel. I desire to represent myself, he said. He paused for a few seconds, and I would like my own motion. I think for most of us in the courtroom, one of the strangest things we'd ever seen, he would repeat these awkward phrases over and over, like greater understanding, truth to be preserved, and true justice, sort of randomly thrown into sentences. On the second day of the trial, he offered an objection that lasted over an hour and at one point pulled some paperwork out of a manila envelope and recited a purported revelation from God. He said, I, the Lord God of heaven, call upon the court to now cease this persecution against my holy way. Let it stop now and sent a scourge upon the prosecutorial zeal to be humbled by sickness and death, which really pissed off the judge. <laughs> I think it was day four that Rebecca Musser who'd left the FLDS after Warren Jeff's father, Rulon, died. She had been married to Rulon, and she didn't want to marry Warren. <laughs> she left, and she testified. She came in wearing a red shirt, which is a forbidden color in the FLDS, and a tight black skirt, spike heels, hair ironed. <laughs> and I think I described her as having the confidence and friendliness of a cruise ship director. She explained how the church worked, described the victims who were not going to be present in the courtroom, and just built the case. But it was Jeff's own words from that priesthood record that really sealed his fate. It was so detailed, you got a real insight into every move he made, how he would bring young women into his room, and the state introduced an audio tape in which he is instructing a dozen of his wives, including the 15-year-old who was part of this trial, to have group sex with him. And the prosecutor then showed other records, like DNA, that showed that Jeff's had a baby with this girl. So that sort of wrapped up the first, the 15-year-old part of the case. Then they had to turn to the 12-year-old, and that's the aggravated sexual assault charge. And they showed the photographs of the marriage between Warren and Marianne and then played an audio recording. He apparently recorded a lot and in this case had a recording of himself having sex with Marianne and saying her full name and her responding and, and the parents are there and everything. Oh, how horrifying. Um, so that's played. The uh, reaction in the courtroom, I remember, was 
it was just like stunned, I think. What of the people, the the devout people in the courtroom who were standing with him, uh-huh. was that a similar reaction or was it just sort of, it doesn't really matter? They left. They were not there during that when the recording was played. Was there a warning from the judge or something beforehand? No. Or? Anything that was really incriminating to Warren, I seem to remember that they were not there. I assume that Warren just told them, today don't come or something similar, you know, but I don't think it would have changed anything for them. Everybody knew what was going on. It's still hard for me to understand how that can be justified. In the church? Yes. How they justified it? Yeah. I think it's similar to the way that anybody will follow a leader who they feel it has, is the mouthpiece of God. I think if you have a certain background and you're just told never to question that, even when it's really harmful, if you disagree, obviously there were people who did leave of their own accord. Some some weren't expelled. They'd left and escaped. But a lot of times it's hard to escape because you have to get not just yourself out, but a bunch of kids or a sibling. And then what are your resources? You don't have yeah. a job. Well, now there is at least one group that I know of up around Short Creek for people who leave. So you, he is representing himself still, which mm-hmm. is interesting because I think the court insists that you have somebody yeah. sitting with you. And so, he there, did. so there's no problem with appeals and stuff. Yeah. But you can't go back and say, well, I changed my mind and I didn't tell anybody and I yeah. should have had an attorney. Yeah. Okay. So he had somebody who probably was just keeping his mouth shut, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Until closing arguments, I think, or no, or, or sentencing. Maybe it was sentencing when the lawyer came back on the scene. What was... Warren like in court, would we describe him as this charismatic no. leader? It's the opposite. <laughs> I think that was part of it. You always hear about how a leader like this has a lot of charisma and is very charming. And he was he had none of that going on. Absolutely none. Just to catch you up, I'm talking with Texas Monthly Magazine reporter Katie Vine about a remarkable story in Texas. She covered the 2013 trial of Warren Jeffs, the president and prophet of the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jeffs was charged with the aggravated sexual assault of a 12-year-old and the sexual assault of a 15-year-old. Meanwhile, his family and the faithful sit nearby. I sat next to his brother, Lyle, in the courtroom. I think it was during closing arguments. Warren just sort of stood there for a long time, maybe 30 minutes, maybe longer, and then said, I think I am at peace. I turned to Lyle and I said, what's going on? And he, he's gotten into trouble himself over the past couple of years, but he just shrugged and then he fell asleep. So you got to wonder, like, that was just sort of a mysterious part of the experience. He had brought in a faithful member and put him on the stand and asked if he was happy. The guy looked to me sort of scared to death because a lot of the questions that Warren was asking could have gotten him into trouble with the law. Like what? What was he asking? Things like getting close to asking questions about, do you have underage wives kind of thing? Or have you married off? I mean, there were just so many instances where a lot of us were kind of like, where is this going? Like, you really don't, you still don't get it. 
that this is illegal, that this is a problem. What was he trying I don't to think, establish? Like, that that he was not uh, this was not a this, cult that people could leave if they wanted that to people are happy they like me yeah <laughs> this is good and i have the answers i think he believes that he is the chosen there is video of him talking with one of his followers and he tells the follower i'm a fraud basically so he has moments where i think he must know but then the rest of the time he's just boosting himself up and saying like yeah I, i'm the mouthpiece of god and i have all the answers and i should not question my judgment and we saw that i think even in the courtroom i think he thought i mean he hasn't had many challengers <laughs> in his lifetime and so to stand in a courtroom i think he thought that he still had this power what I was going to ask was, I'm actually surprised that he even was willing to acknowledge the court in any mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. you know, where I think that there are instances where people who are cult leaders who just kind of say, this is not my realm. I don't need mm -hmm. to listen to you. He obviously had, knew he had to play the game. I think so. And I think whether the drama was intentional or not, th there was big drama <laughs> in the way that he presented the court with the long periods of silence at some times and then other times just talking for an hour in these sort of halting phrases. Just bizarre, but it kept the jury's attention, the judge's attention, and certainly the rest of the courtroom. We were all just wondering, does he know what this looks like? And I, I couldn't say. I think he has been surrounded by his followers for so long that he maybe doesn't have a firm grasp on how other people perceive him. And I don't, I like, I don't think he was playing the game necessarily. I think he just, I don't think he gets it. I think probably any narcissistic personality. And then we got to sentencing, which was awful, because that's when you really got the full scope of his misdeeds. You think you've heard so many awful things up to this point that you figure that's maybe the extent of it. But then his nephew took the stand and said Jeff's raped him when he was five. Uh, one woman wow. testified that Jeff's molested her when she was seven. And there were witnesses to other criminal activity. I remember thinking back to when they first moved to Texas and folks thought that they were maybe like the Amish. I mean, what a joke, you know, um, he's a monster. So he got life in prison. He's in East Texas. I followed up a little bit on all this. My understanding from the investigator in uh, Short Creek, uh, Sam Brower, is that Warren still calls the shots from prison. He told me, quote, he has broken down the family structure of the FLDS in the past few years so that there are no more marriages in the FLDS. Husbands and wives have been dissolved and children have caretakers now. Procreation takes place in a ritual by one of the 12 high priests assigned to impregnate women. Husbands and wives can shake hands, but for no more than three seconds. I they've, mean, they've that's left Texas. Yeah, they've left Texas and are now scattered around the country. I think a third, Sam told me, had been kicked out, but they're in just various sort of houses of hiding around the U.S. and maybe beyond. I don't know. Is there any hope that he'll get out, or is this a hard life? Oh, I don't life? think he's getting out. He does a hunger strike every once in a while, but I don't think he's ever. What's his demand with the hunger strike? That the doors open and he be released, right? And he's there for life. I wonder how he's received by other inmates. <laughs> and did you try to interview him or no? I'm yeah. assuming you did. Sure. <laughs> but like, You're not going to get to him? No. I approached him when he was on the bench outside 
the courtroom. It wasn't much of an interaction. In the array of stories that you've covered, I mean, how long have you been doing this? 23 years. Wow. In the 23 years, where does this story fit in into your kind of portfolio? I mean, what did you want people to know from your story? Because you did several of them. I do sort of read anything that comes out about them generally because I just remain interested in the people involved. Every story is different, but this one had more unexpected twists and turns. All I knew going in was that 400-some children had been taken from their parents and then returned. And that's kind of all I started with. So everything that came out with these dictations and other allegations, the whole world that he had set up seemed too horrible to be real to me, I think. Then you had to acknowledge that it was real? I mean, there were things that I was hearing in the beginning about this temple bed that he wanted constructed. And I'd seen his requirements for the temple bed on paper, how it was to be built and what it was going to be used for. And it was for impregnating his wives, that there would sort of a quorum around him at the time. And I just thought, this sounds like some horror fantasy that someone is having, right? I was skeptical. And then it turned out that that was absolutely true. So I guess the lessons for me were, yes, be skeptical, but I wasn't prepared for things that awful to be true. They seemed so far out. You know, you hear about other groups in which terrible things have happened. Waco, I guess this is sort of what happens sometimes where you just think, well, that seems like... Somebody's got a lot of time in their hands and is just sort of making things up. But, no, well, that's real. Who were the most interesting people in this story for you? Warren is pretty interesting, as horrible as he is. When you're watching history unfold, you know, when you're sitting in a courtroom watching somebody, this was history in the making. This was a crazy chapter in Texas history and in FLDS history. So him, Marianne, as brief as that encounter was, it was surprising although maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. And her mother and caretaker, everybody was so bubbly and happy to see me. And I just thought that was so strange. Or, you know, we visited the creamery where there was a young woman who was in charge of making the cheese. And she was listening to choral music over the speakers. And she just seemed so happy. You know, I wanted to to be as fair to them as possible, I think, and try to see it through their eyes. I know that the lawyers who represented the mothers definitely have a different perspective from a lot of others who thought that the children needed to be taken away permanently, and including the boys from families who had shown that they had kicked out other sons. I think the argument being, what will prevent you from not kicking out all the boys in your family and marrying off the girls, and not just marrying them off, but impregnating them? It would be like somebody deciding, I want my daughter to have my neighbor's, my 70-year-old neighbor's child. And so she will now do that with my permission. There were people in the courtroom whom I met who said, we all have different traditions. But to me, I mean, just from a human rights perspective, when you are impregnating somebody, you are sort of chaining them to that spot. For sex is bad enough, but but it seems to me that, that the impregnation 
from my perspective, was something that made it different. Well, certainly traps them. Right. Did you have a sense for what day-to-day life was in this situation, FLDS, what day-to-day life for a, for a young woman might have been? At I mean, the YFC ranch? Uh, yes. They worked. You mentioned a creamery. Yeah. What, what is the ranch even like? Oh, it was, it was fantastic. Honestly. How many acres it was, was it? Beautiful. It was big. They had a big orchard. They had beautiful gardens, giant wooden homes that they had built. They're amazing with construction. There was a big white temple. The day to day, I mean, I think they they worked a lot. The young boys too did a lot of construction work. When you when you were driving around, there would be a ten year old driving a forklift <laughs> kind of thing. They worked. Uh, did they produce product? Like where did I money? So. What did money come from? There's a lot of construction. They were very well known for construction in the area, and they got a lot of construction jobs, which I think bothered their competition because in some cases they were basically using child labor. <laughs> you know. And certainly free labor. Yeah. Yeah. So they would get contracts. They never had state contracts, I'm assuming, but they would just get contracts from from other businesses. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did anybody ever trace funding for them? I'm assuming the government did at some point. Utah, because Utah has been kind of wrestling with them longer than Texas did. They found a lot of issues with food stamps scandal and other kind of tax issues. If they were desperate, it could have been like an Al Capone. In Utah, I think they really nailed them really? on that pretty hard. Yeah, like financially took a big hit. So the day-to-day life, you were saying that, you know, everybody worked and there was probably daily church. They looked incredibly healthy. Everybody talks about this, why the women who were taken into custody were considered underage because they only eat organic food that they grew and made. They live in this sort of country setting and nobody's really overweight. Because they're working. And, uh, you know, that was one of the things that came up when the children were taken away and they were given hot dogs or something like that or sloppy joes. And then they would get like terribly upset stomachs because they were used to eating food that that they'd made. Not processed. Right. Wow. So that was a big adjustment. And then how long were the, you might've said this, but as a reminder, how long were the kids out of custody before they were returned? I could look it up right here. Okay, let's look it up. (laughs) It's ask Siri or wherever. Was it foster care that they would go into? Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd foster, foster care in group homes. That must have just been such a culture shock for them. I can't uh, even imagine. Yeah. Especially the older ones. Okay. So it looks like May 29th and they were taken April. So a month, April 3rd to May 29th. Wow. So two months. That's a long time. It's a long time. To have a different, to be in such a different culture. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. That must have been so traumatizing for the kids. So now, do we have an idea of how many members are still active members of FLDS? I mean, Sam Brower, the investigator, told me that a third had been kicked out of the 10,000. Of those 10,000, I don't know how many are still at Short Creek and how many of the sort of chosen are in houses of hiding around. But So I don't know what that breakdown is, but... Um, but so maybe, you know, 6,500, something like that. In stories like this as a reporter, is it difficult to process the, I could write murder stories all day long, even husbands killing wives, but the child aspect of this is very upsetting for me. Mm-hmm. Is that hard for you? I mean, I don't, I don't remember if you have kids or not. Yeah. It'd be hard. Yeah. I mean, is that as a mom, is that hard for you as a parent? 
Or do you have to check that at the door because this is a story you, you have to cover? There were definitely times when I could think of it as a story. There were times in the courtroom when audio evidence was being played, for example, or when witnesses were discussing their own experiences with Warren that it was that I did not have, let's say, a professional reaction. <laughs> it was a very personal reaction. To yourself or to anybody else? No, just sitting there, yeah. It was very upsetting. I find it very hard to be unbiased or objective in cases like that. I am glad that I got to see the YFC Ranch for that reason. I mean, to have their perspective, to try to understand. Because I, of course, really did want to try to understand where they're coming from. This is not the first time a group like this has landed in Texas, and it won't be the last time. And so I think it's always important to try to understand what's going on, but there's no doubt it was, yeah, ex there were times when it was extremely upsetting. Are there lessons learned from this, do you think? Either for you or for just the country? I mean, I think it's hard to know what's best sometimes. I think we have, a, we have for me, I think we have this sort of set of standards that not everybody adheres to. And how can you predict what's going to happen with someone, with a group and where they're going to head? And can we do preemptive strikes? And yeah, I think it's a, it's a really difficult story to cover. And I think any case where you have children, religious liberties, and some potential danger. And I mean, I'm sure that there are circumstances with, you know, very sick children and certain religions that don't want medical interference, right? Those are hard calls. But in the end, usually the state decides you, you cannot let this child just die. Yeah, but it's difficult because that wasn't necessarily the case here, right? They had to return them. And I'm sure that must have been difficult for so many of the people in, in CPS or, or, you know, these different agencies. That must have been really heartbreaking to try to figure out the right thing to do. Well, and I think part of it was trying to understand the family unit. Usually you, as a caseworker, you know, you, you identify who are the parents and who are the children. And I think in this situation, it was much more complex. Whether it was fabrication or true, they're probably a mix of both. There were kids who were living with people who were not their parents and saying, these were my parents. <laughs> was just, uh, I, I think sometimes they were maybe covering for underage mothers. And overall, I think that really freaked out the investigators who were interviewing the children and wondering like, what is the family unit structure here? I can't get a handle on it. We've got to make a decision. The sun is going down. Where's this kid going? If we leave now, they are leaving and we'll never see these children again. I think there was a lot in play there. The perception at the time was that the state overstepped. And now there are, you know, in hindsight, there are plenty of people who say that was 100% the right call because well, a million reasons. <laughs> but um, that taking the kids away was the right call. Yeah. And then you have, you're supposed to work it case by case, child by child, right? Is this child in danger? Is it not, not in bulk, of course, never do that, but, but take it child by child um, and try to figure out each kid's situation. And they just didn't have time to do that. On the next episode of Wicked Words, 
All of them were beaten around the head. It was as horrid a description as you can possibly imagine. And they talked about blood in that bedroom, especially, being halfway up to the ceiling and covering everything. And then there's at least one of them is killed in another room. So there's a pool there. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 